Well, good morning. My name is Garth Glenn, serves the associate pastor. I extend my warm welcome to the ones that hopefully you've already received, both here and certainly online. I'm glad that you could join with us this morning. If you need a Bible, um, the professional Bible handlers are making their way down the aisle right now. Just raise your hand. We'll get a copy of God's Word into your hand so you can follow along with us if you don't happen to have one. Pastor Rob is out for the weekend with uh, Becky at a, being able to attend a wedding, and I, we trust that they're having a sweet time uh, away. But uh, it's always a joy. It's always a privilege, an honor for me to step in and, and do just this and, and open up God's Word with you. And uh, like I already mentioned, the book of Psalms is where we're going to be, Psalms 113, smack dab in the middle of your Bible, and uh, we'll get there in just a second. The Psalms is one of the most popular books of the Old Testament. That's certainly the case in my life. I find myself there a lot. If I, any part of my devotional time usually consists of something from the Psalms. And it, actually, it's the most quoted book in the New Testament. I'm not sure if you know that, realize that. It's one of the most quoted books in the New Testament. And I think Psalms' popularity is because it consists of themes that everyone can relate to. The Psalms are all about our relationship with God, our relationship with him, our, our communication to him, coming before him and just laying it on the line, opening up our heart and our mind and say, this is what I'm feeling, this is what I'm dealing with, I need help. And crying out to the God of the universe. I think Psalms is a constant reminder for those reasons for us, that God wants to realign and refocus our perspective and feelings with his character and work. That's what happens all the time. I, I, at least it does in my life, and I think that's a big part and uh, point of the Psalms. It's about realigning, refocusing our perspective and feelings with his character and work. Lord, this is what's happening in my life. Lord, this is what I feel this is how I uh, am encountering, these are the things I'm encountering. These are the circumstances of my life. And most of the time, the tables turn and it's no longer a focus on my life and who I am and what's going on in my life, what happens? It's on the character and work of God himself. By the way, it's why we use the Psalms for men's prayer every Thursday morning. Yes, this is an advertisement, this is a commercial. I see Sean back there waving his hand, one of the guys that joins with us on a regular basis every Thursday morning from 6.30 to 7.30. We do just this. We open up the Word of God, we open up to the Psalms, we read it out loud, then we allow it to inform us, direct us, and help us to pray back to the Lord. It's a sweet time, and I encourage you, you don't have to be part of men's ministry or whatever, or a member of the church, you just got to be a guy, and we uh, just invite you to join us every Thursday morning right out there in the lobby. We'd love to have you be a part of that. Well, chapter 113 is a psalm that is meant to be sung. Please don't get nervous. I am not going to sing it this morning. I would love it if you stuck around through the whole message, and me singing it might jeopardize that. This is the first hymn of six, Psalm 113 to 118, sung by Jews before and after the observance of Passover. So... If you connect the dots a little bit here, we can assume this was a hymn sung by Jesus and his disciples before they took part in the Last Supper 
And of course, Jesus went to the cross. Just let that set in a little bit. Let that, just think about that. Jesus is singing a psalm of praise to God the Father about his work before he lays his life down for you and for me. It's a song of praise. I think whatever we find ourselves impressed with, we naturally praise. Don't need to con- convince you of that. That's Captain Obvious stuff. Athletes, celebrities, achievements, for crying out loud, even food. We praise food. We praise anything that we deem exceptional. Now, certainly, the world's standard of what is praiseworthy these days is up for debate. But nonetheless, we naturally acknowledge the extraordinary. It's an easy thing for us to ascribe praise to it. We brag on the person who has done the exceptional. That's what the psalmist is doing here. And again, we could open up the psalms to a number of different psalms and do the same thing we're doing this morning. But that's what the psalmist is doing in 113. But he is bragging on God. He's directing his focus and his praise and he's lifting up who God is. And this psalm starts with a command to praise the Lord and it ends with the same command to praise the Lord. Sometimes we don't connect those dots. That praise is a command. That's what we're, te- we're being told to do right here. So follow along with me as I read all nine verses of this short psalm. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. I think you're picking up on the theme already. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Well, the praise found here, no big surprise, is proper and commanded. First off, it's proper because God alone deserves the highest praise. God alone deserves the highest praise. Who is like our God? To some degree, it's a rhetorical question. Could it just stop there? How can we answer that? Because there's no standard to use that is high enough to compare God to. He is apart. He is above and beyond anything we can conceive. No one is like our God. We are like God, right? Made in the image of God. But don't confuse that because God is not at all like us. We can't flip that around and say, well, then God is like us. No, we can image God, but God is not at all like us. He is unlike anyone and anything. He is in a category completely and totally by himself. So Psalm 113 speaks of his acts and character in order to elicit praise on our behalf, to elicit praise from his people. God alone deserves the highest praise. But again, as I've already made the point, 
make no mistake, praise is a commandment. The highest praise is to come from God's people. The, the highest praise is to come from God's people. It's why we do what we do. It's why we do what we just did. How incredible is it for us to gather together corporately, open our mouth, and give praise to the one who deserves it, the one alone who deserves it? Thank you, Sam. Praise, O servants of the Lord. That is the people of God. If you are his, a follower of Jesus, you are now a servant of his. You are no longer a slave to sin, but you are now a slave to Christ. A bondservant, as Paul talks about quite frequently in Scripture. And this psalm is commanding his people to give God the glory he alone deserves. So instead of being in bondage to sin, we are now free. We are free to submit to, to serve, and obey wholeheartedly the one who saved us. We are free to give our life to the one who freed us. We are free to obey with our praise. I think when we begin to see God for who he is, praise should just fall out of our mouth. It should be an absolutely automatic thing. I don't think we should be commanded and told and like, hey, this is where you need to respond. I think it should be an automatic response on our behalf which means the idea of arms folded and mouth shut and mind unengaged during a time of worship like we just experienced, I think is the antithesis of this psalm. May that be an encouragement to every single one of us. Amen? May that correction or that conviction land where it may help you to realize that for you to stand there uninvolved and unengaged and unresponsive to singing and thinking about and lifting high the name of Jesus is not found in Scripture. Just the opposite, in fact. It's the antithesis, if you will, of all the Bible. Now listen, knowledge of God isn't just for knowledge's sake. That's an easy thing for us to misunderstand. For some of us, learning and knowing is a really good thing, and it, we, we, it just comes easy to us and whatever. But knowledge of God isn't just for knowledge's sake. Sound doctrine, rich theology, is, for, is all for the purpose of praise and worship. It's all for the purpose of praise and worship. Knowledge must be accompanied with genuine God-focused praise. As you study the Bible in your own personal time, as you learn more about who God is and his plan and his work and his faithfulness, it's not just so you can spout back things to people and show people how smart you are. No, the point of it is to increase your praise, to increase your worship of the God of the Bible. I think here lies one of the key reasons for the church's existence, for our existence. We exist to know God and for that knowledge to fuel our worship of God corporately and individually. 
I believe a lack of praise on our part is too often because we have elevated the finite world. We have lifted high that which is around us to the detriment of the infinite God of the universe. I think we literally, we live with eyes down and minds set on this world and we are far too impressed with what is around us and what we experience to the detriment of lifting high the God of creation. We are not moved to praise by the majesty of God. That's not God's fault. That's ours. We truly understand the magnitude of God who he is, we'll do nothing but praise him. So we exist to praise God. Point taken, Garth, got it. We exist to praise God. But along with that, don't let it just stop there. Along with that should be a natural desire of God's people to want others to praise him. Like it should bother us that people don't know God, which means they don't worship God. Evangelism and witnessing is a thing. It's a command. We're called to do those things because there are millions who don't know God, which means they don't praise God, which means God does not give, get the glory he deserves. There's people who don't know him, which means they don't praise him. Thank you, John Piper, when he said, missions exist. Why? because worship doesn't. Missions exist, or fill in, evangelism exists because worship doesn't. Witnessing, proclaiming God exists because worship doesn't. An unknown God is an unworshiped God. If you know God, then you praise God, period. And it's the job of the church. It's our job as the church of Jesus Christ, the people of God, to proclaim the excellencies of God with the hope and prayer that others, just like what's happened in our life, so that others will be set free to praise the God we know and proclaim. Amen? Highest praise also calls for the people of God to bless God's name now and forever. To bless God's name now and forever. Look at the verses, second part of verse 1 and going through verse 3. Let me read those again. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised I think we speak frequently about God blessing us and others. We pray it all the time. Lord, would you bless them? Would you keep them? So it might feel weird to talk about us blessing God. God blesses us by setting us apart with his favor, his grace, and his mercy. That's what he does. That's what we're asking for, God to do in people's lives. But to bless God's name, so to bless God's name, simply means to set his name apart as holy. To bless his name is to revere and honor his name above any other name, above anything else. 
But have you ever thought, like, why his name? Why can't we just say that about God himself? Why can't we just talk about the Lord in the sense? Well, first of all, we only know God's name because he has revealed it to us. And praise him for that. We only know God's name because he's revealed it to us. We don't tell God who he is. He tells us who he is. Just like he did to Moses in Exodus 3, verses 14 through 15. God said to Moses through the burning bush, remember that? Talk about freak out moment. Moses comes and encounters this burning bush and God speaks from the bush and says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. It's an interesting way. You ever read scripture and just scratch your head about how the Lord is communicating and wanting the message to be conveyed? I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord capitalized. Why? Because it's the proper name of God, Yahweh. Anytime you see that, you've heard our senior pastor stand up here time and time again and explain that to us. It's the proper name of God, Yahweh. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And then the Lord says, this is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God's name, quite literally, is who he is. Not the case with me, not the case with you, but it is the essence of his divine being. His name reveals his reputation and character. We don't get that in this day and age, do we? Names don't have the same significance as we see in Scripture. Certainly not in the same context as we see we're talking about God himself. We don't understand that. So let me give you seven things that can help us understand what the name I am means. So when you see this in Scripture, hopefully some of these things come to your mind and helps you understand what is meant by the proper name of God. I am, number one, is without a beginning. He is without a beginning. Now, I can't explain this to you, but this is what Scripture teaches. I don't understand this. We have everything in our life and in this world has a beginning and has an end. Not the case with God. Not the case with I am. Without a beginning, no starting point, always was. Who made God? No one. God didn't even make himself which is sometimes what we like to tell our children. Who made God? Well, God did. No, he didn't. He's always existed. God simply is and has always been. Number two, he's never ending. It's never ending. Eternity past, eternity future. He's never ending. God will never die. He will always exist. He is eternal. Number three, he's totally self-existent. I am is totally self-existent. He's independent. He is completely independent. He relies on nothing except himself. 
He is outside of time, space, and matter, which makes sense because he's created time, space, and matter. So he is outside of those. He doesn't need anyone or anything. He created us. Maybe the question is, well, then, if he doesn't need anything, he doesn't need anyone, why, why are we here? Why does creation exist? Why, why do we exist? Here's the goodness of God. He created us so that we may know and worship him. It's just quite simply. To know and worship him so that we can enjoy his glory and majesty. Number four, he's constantly perfect. He is constantly perfect. He is unchanging. He is not evolving. He is not, there isn't something missing that he hasn't quite learned or he's waiting for us to respond in a certain way for then for him to respond or act. He is constantly perfect, unchanging, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God is the standard of perfection, beauty, and goodness. And I understand these things are things I hope you understand about the God you serve. But they're just good reminders, again, as we open up the word of God and we see that proper name of God. Number five, it's sustaining everything. I am is sustaining everything. Everything is dependent upon him. As it has been said, there is not one rogue molecule in this universe that he does not control, that is not dependent upon the God of the universe. Everything is dependent upon him. Number six, I am is the center of everything. I am is the center of everything. Everything created exists for him. It exists to display his glory. Point to him. It is all 120% about him. And it should be. Life is only right if, if, if it's about God. And then lastly, number seven, I am is doing what he pleases. He is doing what he pleases. Psalm 115, a couple chapters later, verse 3, a verse I'm sure you're somewhat familiar with. It says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. You know what he does that pleases him? What brings him glory. God answers to no one. He does what he wants, which is totally fine because he is perfect. So whatever he does is perfect and warranted. Me doing whatever I want is not good. You doing whatever you want is not good. But it is good for God. So seven things to help us understand what God's proper name means. And listen, his name is so important that God gave a commandment prohibiting the misuse of it. Commandment number three. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, certainly the most common application of this commandment is how? Swearing, right? Can't swear, can't take the Lord's name in vain in that capacity. It is swearing. We are not to use the name of the Lord carelessly or thoughtlessly or flippantly. To do so is to treat something holy and sacred as common and secular. But praise, listen, 
there's different applications, deeper applications of this commandment. Praise is more than just what we say and sing. Verse 3 tells us that praising God should be in every moment of everyday activity. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. True believers have been named as his. It is as if God has stamped his name on us. We bear God's name on our life and bodies, which means everything we do has bearing on whether or not our lives bring praise to God. Far more than it just being here right now for 30 minutes on a Sunday morning, it's the entirety of our life. God is so identified with the believer that to defile our lives by sinning, to defile our lives is to profane his name. Our reputation and character is now a reflection on God's reputation and character. Whenever we sin, we profane his name. Whenever we gossip, slander, shirk our responsibility, or fill in the blank, we disrespect God's name. In those moments, our life is quite literally contrary to God's holy character. So living a holy life is a key way to bless his name. And listen, a life of praise is to be our purpose now because it will be our purpose for eternity. It will be our purpose for all of eternity to praise the one repeatedly, endlessly. Does that mean we'll be standing with arms raised in eternal worship service? which is typically how we think of heaven. Like, oh my word, is this going to be a never-ending worship service? Are you kidding? Do I get to sit down? Do I have to have my hands raised? Like, what is that going to look like? Are we new songs? Is it going to be contemporary worship? Do we get to go back to the hymns? Like, what are we, what's that going to be like? First of all, if that is what heaven is like, it would be gr- the greatest honor and privilege to worship like that for all eternity. Amen. I don't think that's exactly what heaven will be like. In a new heaven and a new earth, whatever we will be doing will be done as praise to the Lord. It'll be done as worship to the Lord, which is our goal today that we fall well well short of. But we'll be doing it perfectly then. Blessing his name for eternity, it's the greatest thing we could ever do with our never-ending life, and it starts now. So let's bless his name, but let's also boast of God's transcendence. Let's boast of God's transcendence. There's a word I'm sure you didn't use this morning when you woke up, thinking about God's transcendence. Verse 4 through verse 6, the Lord is high above all nations, and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? Please know, follower of Christ, we can't elevate God too much. We cannot lift him high enough. But unfortunately, man's natural tendency is to attempt to shrink him down, isn't it? We want a God, small g, if you will, 
that we can totally understand or understand to some degree more than what we see in Scripture, a God that we can control, a God that we can manage, God that feels safe and comfortable to us. Like man has the natural tendency to fashion God into his own image, ideas, and wishes. Make God in our image. I think it was Voltaire who said, God created man in his image and man returned the favor. And we do it all the time. I can prove it to you. Think of these questions. How many times have you read the Old Testament and been embarrassed by God's actions? How many times have you read, I'm like, man, I'm, I, I, I literally don't know what to do with that because that's really messing with my idea of who God is. How many times have you, has God offended your version of God? A whole lot of times in my life. And just for the record, there aren't two gods. There isn't a God of the Old Testament who's mean and wrathful and then a God of love in the New Testament. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the same God. Let's just say that our understanding of God is too elementary at best. We need our mind expanded, awakened, humbled. There's no one else who sits outside of time, space, and matter. As I've already said, the book of Job, I think, is a great place to go to, to be reminded of this. The book of Job is Job being confronted with the reality of who God is. The book ends. You guys know the story. How does the book end? The book ends with God asking a question. And he could have just said, where were you, Job, and then stopped. But he doesn't. He heaps example after example after example on him and says, where were you when I set the boundaries, when I created everything out of nothing? In other words, Job, who do you think you are? I am God and you are not. And Job does the right thing. He has the right response, which is what? I will speak no more. Who am I? Who am I to question God? I think God put Job in his place by revealing his glory and majesty, by pointing to his transcendence. There is no one else who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. This is a famous picture many of you might be familiar with. The pale blue dot is a photograph of earth. Yes, earth is in there. If you can make it out, little tiny dot the size of a pixel on that screen. It was taken in 1990 by NASA's Voyager 1 at a distance, these are miles that I can't compute, at a distance of 3.7 billion miles from the sun. It was made from a series of 60 images that were used to create the first family portrait of our solar system. Do you feel insignificant? We're there somewhere. In a sense, if you will, this is God's view. This is where he resides, even further out than this. The image inspired scientist Carl Sagan to write a book by the same name. I am not endorsing Carl Sagan. Here's my point. For the believer, though, it should humble us in fearful awe of who our God is. It should humble us in fearful awe of who our God is. 
God is so high and lifted up that he needs to stoop to look upon the universe. So we exist to worship the true God of the Bible and not some elementary and sanitized version of our liking. But listen, we can't just talk about his transcendence, can we? To believe he is only out there and somehow not involved would make us deists. It would just make us deists. This idea, this thinking, this doctrine, if you will, that God created everything, but right now he's off somewhere looking on as an unimpressed bystander. He just got things going, took his hands off of it, and he's standing off in the distance. But that is not what the Bible teaches. To only express and believe in the transcendence of God is to stop short of comprehending an incredibly present and involved God. So lastly, we must also thank God for coming near. We must thank God for coming near. God is transcendent. He is incomparable. But God is a near God. It doesn't make sense. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere all the time. He is here. And not just standing by idly. No, he is intimately involved in doing the incredible. Let me reread 7 through 9, verses 7 through 9. He, the Lord, raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. What does the transcendent God do? Well, he comes to us. He comes to his pitiful people and personally lifts them up. From the gutter of the world to the courts of princes, as the king of kings, he is able to give his people positions of honor and favor. He even cares for the childless woman. If you know your Bible, all throughout Scripture, for a woman to be barren in biblical times and culture was one of the worst fates she could suffer. No child meant no future, no security. And literally, verses 7 and 8 are actually taken from Hannah's prayer after God opened her womb, gave her a son, Samuel, and then she gave him right back to serve the Lord. Incredible. The poor, the needy, and barren. You have to know this morning that spiritually that's all of us. It's every single one of us. Spiritually, we're all poor and born in the dust. We sang it this morning. We are dust. We all sit in the ash heap of our sin. No matter what status is achieved within this world, spiritually, <clears throat> excuse me, we never rise higher than the garbage dump. Or better yet, the morgue. As the Bible tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We are incapable to change our location and condition. We are needy beyond comprehension. But God does the seemingly impossible. He stoops low to meet with the lowliest. He leaves his position on high 
and, and he comes to the dust. In fact, he becomes like the dust. As we look <clears throat> back upon this psalm, we can see ourselves clearly, can we not? He has raised us up and seated us in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, the Prince of Peace. We can testify that God has lifted us up and placed joy within our hearts, even when we are in great need, even in the midst of our suffering. I think it's easy to think of God saving the collective group, right? For God so loved the world, the great Savior of all, dying for the people of God. But what we see in this psalm is a personal and intimate God who saves us one by one. That's what he does. He comes individually to each one of us and works incredibly to save us and to care for us. He saves us individually, big enough to control everything, yet also close enough to care for us. Who is like our God? He saves us from our sin, and he rescues us in our suffering, which means he not only sees you, but he knows and is near you. We are to boast, may we boast in Christ. Amen. If we are to praise, let us praise the Lord. Let's pray. What a gift praise and worship is to you, Lord, the one true God. So thank you, Lord, for giving us that opportunity. Thank you for truly the idea that you inhabit the praises of your people. You exist to receive that praise. You exist to receive that worship. And Lord, may we be, our minds be expanded, our hearts be expanded to understand that it's far more than just a Sunday morning thing. That Lord, if we have profaned your name with our life, we need to repent and ask for forgiveness. That it's contradictory to what we are saying and doing here right now. Lord, forgive us for elevating ourselves and for lowering you. May we do just the opposite. May we humble ourselves. And may we lift high who you are. May we bless your name. May we bless the incredible truth that you are high and lifted up. And yet you are here with us caring and loving and working. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for that. We pray this in your name.